It starts out with a lame man leaping. It moves from that to religious people reacting and then finally concludes with apostles appealing. A lame man leaping, religious people reacting, and then finally apostles appealing. And we'll try to move through and see those different uh, steps to this story as we walk through it. Here's the main thing that I want us to take away, though, as we walk through this story this morning and we'll develop it along the way. That spirit-produced compassion and humility will create many opportunities to point people to Jesus and to invite them to turn to Him in faith. Spirit-produced compassion and humility will create many opportunities to point people to Jesus and to invite them to turn to Him in faith. Right at the beginning of our text, we meet a lame man. A man, as I mentioned, who uh, we're not given his name, but we are given a decent amount of information about him. He has been crippled since birth, or literally from his mother's womb. It, uh, as, as we find out later, it seems that his feet, his ankles, they, they don't function. So much so that we're told he's carried to the temple. He can't get there on his own, so he's carried there by friends. He's resolved that the best he can hope for in life is to be a beggar. So the way he is going to provide for himself is by begging. That's what he does. It helps us to understand the condition of this man and that we have all this in mind. This has been his condition since birth. It's so bad that he can't walk. And the fact that he has res he's, uh, resigned himself to being a beggar. And he is known, as we find out in our text, as a beggar. But while this man's physical body might not work very well, his mind seems to be incredibly sharp. Go back to our introduction, being at the right place at the right time. This guy is no fool. His friends carry him to the temple. And they don't just carry him to the temple at any given moment. They carry him to the temple at what our text says is the ninth hour, which was three o'clock in the afternoon. It was the afternoon time of prayer. It was the evening sacrifice. And they place him at what in our text calls the beautiful gate. There's some discrepancy over which gate was the beautiful gate and those types of things. Uh, modern commentators tend to believe this was a gate on the eastern part of the court of the Gentiles that led into that first inner court, the court of the women. And he's sitting there and all of these faithful Jewish people are passing by this beggar. And oh, of course, by the way, Jews thought it very, very important to give alms, right? And so this man makes sure that he's at the right place at the right time to be there begging. He thought, or maybe his friends have helped him in this, he thinks he's planned this out quite well and does this on a regular basis. Well, Peter and John thought they were headed to the right place at the right time. They're here at the beginning of our text. Now, we know Peter and John because they're apostles. If you've read Luke's first volume, the Gospel of Luke, you're very familiar with who Peter and John are. They're headed to the temple, which doesn't surprise us because at the end of Acts chapter 2, Verse 46, it tells us that this was a regular practice of the early church there in Jerusalem. They would go to the temple on a daily basis. It was a place to gather. It was a place to pray. And I think we find in our text that one of the reasons that Peter and John were probably going there is to share the gospel with others, to talk to fellow Jews about Jesus Christ. The Messiah had in fact come. 
Now, it's important that we recognize that Peter and John aren't just ordinary individuals. I mean, they're ordinary in a lot of ways, spectacular in some, Peter's ability to put his foot in his mouth, but that's not what I'm talking about. They are apostles, and they have a very unique role. Again, we're told at the end of Acts chapter 2 that the apostles were performing signs and wonders, and it uniquely sets that for the apostles. We will see others in the book of Acts who perform signs and wonders, but it's primarily through the apostles. Scripture makes clear that the apostles had this very special role in God's redemptive work. I think the apostle Paul puts it well in the book of Ephesians when talking about the church in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, where he says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. This ability given to the apostles through the Spirit to perform signs and wonders functioned like the rest of Scripture. Many times God gave the gift of signs and wonders to those who were speaking on His behalf, particularly at moments when He was changing the way that He was communicating. And so here, Jesus having left, now His apostles are there. They are the ones that He wants His people to listen to. And He gives them this gift of performing miracles. And so, just the right place, just the right time. Here you have a lame man who's been doing this over and over, being here at the temple. He's been in this condition since birth. It may even be, if you want to just go down, uh, I don't know, hypothetical scripture lane, you begin to wonder, did Jesus pass this man by at some point? Because he taught in the temple. Here this man sits. And Peter and John come walking by. And lo and behold, the man asked Peter and John for money. And what's the response? Silver and gold I don't have. Now either Peter and John are really cheap and he has 20 bucks in his back pocket, but he doesn't want to give it up. Or they're literally broke. And I think that's probably the case. Uh, being an apostle, you can just read the rest of the New Testament. It's not a very lucrative gig. In fact, the way we see the early church at the end of Acts chapter 2 conducting themselves with money, they're giving a lot of things away. I don't think Peter and John have a, a nickel in their pocket. What they say to the man is in fact true. We have nothing. We have no money. Now, you can imagine the response of this beggar who's going, well, guys, that's why I'm here. That's what I just asked you for. But what do Peter and John say? Peter looks at this man and says, listen, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I give to you. What did Peter have? What Peter had in the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling him, this ability as an apostle to perform miracles, was not something that Peter had received because he was a cut above the rest. Peter had not gotten this stuff because he had shown himself to just be so far above morally and intellectually and, and in wisdom, he had shown himself to be just way above everybody else. No, he had received all of this by grace through faith in Jesus. And so what he had received by grace through faith, he says he gives, and he gives it freely. Notice, there are no strings attached here. Peter doesn't give this kind of bait and switch. Listen, I'm broke. You have a little bit of money in front of you. I'll heal you. You give me your change. There's none of that. I give it to you. And seemingly with no fanfare, no long drawn out praying, no begging, no shouting, none of this type of stuff, Peter in the name and authority and power of Jesus heals the man. 
it's phenomenal. One of the reasons it's phenomenal is because if you're a reader, you're, you're reading this as one of the original recipients of this text from Luke, you're going, okay, we've read through the first part of this and we've seen Jesus' ability to do this while He was here on earth. We've seen that He had the power and authority to do all of these miracles, even to call the dead back to life. That was amazing, but now Jesus is gone. Is He still able? Can He still do this? Is He still capable? Has He lost some of His power and authority? And right here, in the name of Jesus, Peter heals this man, and the answer is there for us. Now reigning, ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus has lost no power and authority. He does not need to be here to touch people, to see people. He doesn't need to be here physically in order to be able to continue to heal. He does it now through His apostles. He heals. The ascended Christ still has all of this power and authority. He is still able to accomplish these things. Now, you and I sit here this morning and we read this about God performing this healing through Peter. And our doctrinal statement says that we believe these signs, gifts, they have ceased for now. I fully agree with that. And in fact, I think we see that as we march through the book of Acts. We're going to see those sign gifts begin to fade. But with a, what I believe is a, a biblical perspective, the sign gifts has fade. May that never lead us to believe that we have a God who is no longer capable of healing. There's a big difference there. There's a difference between saying God's not functioning in this mode right now, in this way, giving this gift of healing like He had given to Peter and John, and saying He's no longer capable of doing it. I don't think there's anything in Scripture that tells us that we cannot run to God and plead with Him for miraculous healing. And I certainly don't think there's anything in Scripture that tells us that the God that we serve today is somehow less capable, less able in some way insufficient to be able to do it. Now, I understand it poses us some problems because if God is able to do it and chooses not to do it, it becomes difficult for us. But I will tell you in my short lifetime, here's what I've realized, that there's much more comfort to go to a God who is all-sufficient, who is limitless in power and authority, and plead with Him knowing that He is also limitless in His love and in His wisdom and that His plans and purposes are greater than mine, than to go to a God who has somehow shrunken down and too small to help me in my moment of need. Brothers and sisters, this morning, remember that we serve a Lord Jesus Christ who is as capable and as authoritative and as limitless in His power as you see Him in Luke's Gospel and as we see Him here in this story. Here's another side note, and I have to make this quickly, and it came to mind some things that came up this week, and I think it's just important to mention. Jesus demonstrates His miracles in love and compassion for people. He reaches out to those who are marginalized, to those who are poor, to those who are weak, and He heals them, no strings attached. But all of the records of His healing, and all of the records we'll see in the book of Acts, Jesus never heals someone in such a way as to modify their body from the one God gave them. 
This man here didn't have big hairy feet and after Peter healed him, go, hey, could you fix that? My second toe is way bigger than my big toe and it, it, it freaks me out. Could you, could you change that? He doesn't do any of that. What, what God does in these healings through Christ and what he does here in the book of Acts is, is he, he heals to restore, to honor the body that he originally gave to that person when he knit them together in their mother's womb. I think that that is incredibly significant because God moving towards people in love and compassion never dishonors part of who they are as a person by changing, modifying, or shall I say, shifting their body to agree with who they think they should be instead of who God made them to be. You don't ever see a miracle where Jesus changes who somebody is in love and compassion. No, He always restores who God made them to be. That's what happens with this man, and I think that that's a significant thing for us to keep in mind. So this lame man receives by faith what Peter says to him. He allows uh, Peter to take his hand and to, to, to he stands up by faith and he begins walking and even leaping. We're told later on in verse 16 that this man has responded to Peter's words by faith. And so he has been healed. His feet are made strong. His ankles are made to function. His muscles work. This healing is like the other healings we see from Jesus. It is complete and it is immediate. Now, this is quite an introduction to a sermon. I mean, I try with introductions. Justin tries. This one kind of pales all of ours in comparison. If I could bring somebody up here and heal them, and then for the rest of my sermon, they're walking around the stage leaping and praising God. Might be a little distracting, but it would it'd get your attention. Peter hasn't done this just uh, as, as a prop. He shows compassion for this man, and this man responds in faith and is immediately healed, and he seems to recognize right away that Peter and John are not the source of his healing. He immediately begins to give praise to God. Now all of that obviously gets a reaction. So we go from a lame man leaping in the first eight verses to then religious people reacting from verses 9 to 11. Remember, this group of people who are coming together are faithful Jews. They've come to the temple for afternoon prayer. They saw this crippled man probably on their way in. The text tells us that many of them recognized him. He was there on a regular basis. This group, they're faithful. Likely they are morally good people. Some of them witness the miracle take place, probably. Others recognize the man and they cannot deny the miracle that has taken place. They know this is the crippled guy and the crippled guy is now leaping. So what's their reaction? The text tells us that their reaction is awe and amazement. They are astounded. Now, this is the way that people tend to respond throughout Luke's writings to miracles. And it's important that we note that amazement and astonishment and awe are great ways to respond to a miracle, but they are not the same as faith. They're not the same as believing. It's possible to be amazed by something, astounded by something, entertained by something, and not to believe it at all. I offer you the infomercial. 
and most documentaries on Netflix. Right? You watch them, you're entertained by them, and you get to the end and you go, I'm not sure I believe any of that. But it was entertaining. Right? They're amazed. They're astonished. They can't deny what's right in front of them. The person that they knew was lame is now jumping about and praising God. He's clinging to Peter and John. They cannot deny what they're seeing, but their astonishment and amazement has not resulted yet in faith. So they come running to Peter and John, probably because this man is clinging to Peter and John. They want to understand what in the world has just taken place. And so what does Peter do? Well, then we move to this final part. The longest part is this apostle's appeal. The apostle's appeal. The first thing that Peter and John do is they step out of the spotlight. Notice Peter's questions. Why are you surprised at what has happened? Apostles have been performing signs and wonders. Jesus had performed miracles. Why does this astonish you? He follows that up with another rhetorical question. Why are you staring at us? Now, let's be honest with each other, right? I mean, if I had just pulled off something like that, I'm going to be posing for all the pictures, right? I'm not going to be like, oh, no, no, don't look at me. Peter says, why are you looking at us as if our power or piety had accomplished this? Now, hold on. Let's back up for a moment and remember who Peter and John are. Um, This would be Peter who, in his great humility, argued with Jesus, telling him, oh, no, you're not going to die. This is Peter who was ready to go to blows in the garden, pulling out his sword, chopping off someone's ear. This is Peter who above all of the other disciples assured Jesus, they may all deny you. I won't ever deny you. That's this Peter. This John is the John who got his mommy to go to Jesus and ask that her boys get to sit at Jesus' right hand and at his left hand when he came into his kingdom. (laughs) This is John who, with his brother, earning the title Sons of Thunder, asked if Jesus wanted fire from heaven to be called down on the unbelieving town of Samaria. Great examples of compassion and humility, these two are. These are transformed men. These are transformed men who have an opportunity to take glory in a moment, but immediately step to the side. As they perform the miracle, they point to Jesus. And now as everyone is staring at them, they're going, I don't know why you're shocked. Why are you looking at us as though it was our power or our piety? It had nothing to do with us. The keys of uh, the the spirit-produced compassion and humility opens up a lot of opportunities. I think this whole thing never happens, one, if Peter and John don't have compassion for a beggar. 
They're going to the temple. They're going to the temple to pray. I think there's every reason to believe they're going to the temple to witness. So you put yourself in that position. You're out on this thing. You're going to go to a prayer meeting and then you're going out on an evangelistic campaign and you come across somebody who's begging for money. What is it easy to do? I don't have time for that. I'm busy about Jesus' work. Where in the world did they learn to pay attention to beggars? Where in the world did they learn to even stop in the middle of a sermon, which this passage kind of parallels Luke chapter 5, where Jesus in the midst of teaching is interrupted by a lame man who's dropped down from the ceiling in front of him. Where did they learn this type of attitude, this type of compassion? They saw it modeled over and over and over again in Christ and how He conducted Himself towards people. This opens up because Peter and John, even in the midst of going to a prayer meeting, even in the midst of going out to do evangelism, do not overlook people for the sake of what they might perceive to be their mission, but are compassionate. They cared about this man. And they engage with Him, and that opens up an opportunity. But then, with that, there's this humility. This whole thing shuts down if Peter says, that's right, <laughs> it's me. Remember me, guys? I used to be a fisherman, but now I can heal people. Watch this. The whole thing shuts down. And we may sit here this morning and go, well, I would never do that. But the reality is, at least for me, I do it all the time. One, I minimize the impact of compassion. It is really difficult, and you and I have to fight constantly in this culture where we are told over and over again, and it is modeled for us over and over again, that the person who shouts the loudest and is the most obnoxious will be heard. It is difficult to come in and to say, with no strings attached, I am going to show compassion. It's also difficult when that begins to get likes to go, well, you think that's me? You, you, you think you should be pointing at, at me? You think it's my power or piety? How easy is it in a moment when somebody recognizes the blessings of God in our lives to immediately begin to list off all of the wonderful decisions that we have made that have led to, I don't know, our children being so well behaved? To our marriages going so well. Yes, well, I read the right book. <laughs> yes, well, I did X, Y, and Z with my kids. That's why they came out so well. It's so easy. It's so easy to immediately kind of slide ourselves into the limelight. And of course, Jesus, he's, he's, you know, he's backstage or he's in the shadows a little bit. Instead of stepping aside and saying, what, you think, you see that and you think that was me? <laughs> That's not me. That's not me. You think it's my power and my piety? My morality? You think that my life, the good things in my life are the sum total of my choices? Let me tell you a story. Right? Oh, compassion and humility open up so many opportunities. Opportunities to do what? Well, do what Peter does. He steps aside and what does he say? He says, it is Jesus. It's Jesus. Peter will not answer his rhetorical question until verse 16. 
but he wants to give this long lead up to that answer to be abundantly clear which Jesus he is talking about. And so he says that this Jesus is the glorified servant of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Peter is saying to this Jewish audience, listen to me, I am not preaching a new religion. I'm not inventing something new. No, this is the same God as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of your fathers. And this Jesus is His glorified servant who, as we were reminded this morning, I think Peter's mind here is swimming in the book of Isaiah. This glorified servant, I think, connects with Isaiah 52, verse 13, where Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. He also says that Jesus is the holy and righteous one. Words that are used as a messianic title throughout uh, prophecy in the Old Testament, specifically in Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. He calls Jesus the author of life. And to some extent, they can't deny that because now there's a man, I don't know, I kind of picture the man just hopping around the whole time. That's the version as it goes in my head. This guy just bouncing around while Peter's talking. But this man, his feet had no life. And in the name of Jesus, they now have life. He is the author of life. But in contrast to these things about Jesus, Peter makes abundantly clear through this neg- these negative words, the Jesus he's identifying. He is the one that you delivered over. He is the one that you denied. He is the one that you killed. You delivered over, Peter says, to Pilate, this humble servant, because he was willing to give up his life. You denied the holy and righteous one when Pilate, a Gentile Roman ruler, could tell he was righteous. But you denied him and wanted a murderer, a known murderer in his place. You killed the author of life who during his own earthly ministry had healed many, had cast away disease, had cast away demons, and had even raised the dead. You, you killed him. You delivered him over, denied him, and killed him. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob raised him up. And Peter makes this bold statement right there at the heart of what he's saying. We are witnesses. We are witnesses of these things. Now, Peter is speaking, I think, of the apostles. He's speaking of himself, of John. Perhaps if there were other believers there, they were witnesses of these things. Brothers and sisters, our faith does not rest on an emotion that you and I have. It does not rest on hypotheticals. It does not rest on something that someone dreamed up. It rests on real events that happened in time and space history. Jesus Christ 
lived, died, and rose again. And Peter boldly stands there and says, we are witnesses to these things. They're in Jerusalem with Jews who probably lived in Jerusalem coming to the afternoon prayer time for the evening sacrifice. Any of them, if they wanted to disprove it, could just say, let's take a walk to his tomb and see his dead body. Any of them, if they wanted to disprove it, and the body had been moved somewhere else, could take them to that place. But no one can say anything because they were witnesses of the fact that there was an empty tomb. And perhaps many of them had even seen the risen Lord themselves. And Peter stands and says, I testify to this. We are witnesses. So what does Peter do? He talks about Jesus. He points them to Jesus. Can I make what may seem like the most obvious application point in church ever? Talk about Jesus. Point people to Jesus. If you move out from this place in compassion and humility and it opens up opportunities, talk about Jesus. Talk about Him. I know we use the phrase, we're going to live the gospel, and I think I understand what people mean. I don't love the phrase because the gospel is not something you and I live. It's something Jesus accomplished. The gospel isn't something that you and I do. It is something that was done on our behalf through the Lord Jesus Christ who fully accomplished it. Talk about Him. Talk about Him. If we do not talk about Christ, we are not talking about the good news. We will notice that Peter did not stand up and say, you guys know I was kind of a jerk before, but look at my reformed life. If you want to be like me, come sign this paper. What did he say? He points to Jesus. He offers Jesus. That's what he does because that's the good news. That's the gospel. It's what the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished. That is the gospel. And we must talk about it. We have to talk about it. Now, again, I know we, we feel this pressure from our culture that says to us we, we shouldn't talk about religious things and it can be incredibly difficult to, to think in a moment we need to try and turn every conversation to Jesus. Somebody asks you about their truck and you're like, well, if Jesus was here, He could fix it. And it gets weird. It doesn't need to be weird. Listen, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the most significant part of your life. It is honestly weirder if you don't talk about Him. Imagine you've met somebody. You've known them for months, maybe even years. And then all of a sudden one day in like some panic intense moment, they just kind of grab you and go, I just want you to know that I'm married and I love my spouse and we've got kids and it's amazing and you should get married. You want to go to a dating website and we'll look at how you can get married. And you'd be like, what? I think our friendship just ended. This is what we do sometimes as believers. We act like we don't know Jesus. We've never heard about Jesus. People ask us about our weekends. We act like we forgot we went to church. 
We talk about the problems of our lives. We talk about the same issues facing our country, things that are going on in the world like Ukraine. Jesus never enters the picture. And then all of a sudden, in one moment of great conviction, after some bald guy screams at us on the stage, we go out and we're like, oh, i got to tell people about Jesus. So we grab that same poor person by the collar and start screaming at him about Jesus. You're like, I didn't even know. Talk to people about Jesus. It doesn't have to be awkward. In fact, honestly, the more I just attempt to talk to people about Jesus like he's a part of my life, because he is, the more I find it opens up opportunities because people are curious. They want to know. So when people ask me about my weekend, I tell them, you know, one of the best parts of my weekend is I went to church with brothers and sisters in Christ. These aren't family members. They're people that I'm connected through, with through the Lord Jesus Christ because our faith is in Him. And my time with them, it's really, it's just one of the richest parts of my life. There can be an awkward pause after that moment, but I treat it in the same way as someone telling me about a new, I don't know, diet they've taken up. So, some new yoga practice they're a part of. I just, just talk, brothers and sisters, talk about Jesus. Talk about Him. Point people to Him. Well, Peter goes through all of this about Jesus and then he comes to this very important point in verse 17. And again, humility is shown here where Peter says in verse 17, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance and as also did your rulers. Now, I can't help but imagine that Peter has in mind the words of Jesus as he was hanging on the cross in that moment. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You acted in ignorance. Again, the humility, not for Peter to step up and say, I made the right choice, get on board, but to say you acted in ignorance. So here, here now is, is the thing. What you must do, you must repent. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back. Repent. Now remember, these are religious people that he's talking to. I think there's every reason to believe these are really morally good people. He's not talking to a bunch of druggies at a nightclub. He's not talking to violent gang members who are in carcination. He is talking to people who have showed up for a prayer meeting and evening sacrifices. And he's saying to them, you need Christ and you don't need Christ as the next step in your self-reformation. He's not saying you need Christ and he will, he will complete your project to make you a good person. No, he's saying you are a sinner and you need Christ to save you. That's the point he's been making. For all of your morals and all of your goodness, you missed the Messiah. In fact, you delivered him over, you denied him, and you crucified him. So repent, turn to Christ. Why? He lists three reasons. So that your sins may be blotted out. So that times of refreshing may come. I think Peter's referencing there the Holy Spirit. Peter's there as a spirit-indwelt man. He, he is saying to them, listen, believe in Christ and you too, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. These, these times of refreshing talked about as he, as he shared in his message at Pentecost, talked about in Joel, this, the, the Spirit of the Lord would come. And finally, so that Christ will return. He's telling them, listen, this, this Messiah, he's been glorified. He's reigning now in heaven. And He's coming again. 
You think that, that the promises that were made are not being paid attention to. I'm telling you, the Messiah has already come. He's suffered. He's now glorified and He's coming back. The plans are in full swing. Everything spoken by the prophets is going to be fulfilled. And then He gives this warning. Because if you reject this prophet, if you reject Jesus who's greater than Moses, the one to whom all of the prophets from Samuel all the way down have been pointing, if you reject Him, you will be cut off from the people. You'll have no place in the Abrahamic blessing because it's realized in this one, Jesus Christ. Peter does a very natural thing. Having talked about Jesus, he invites them to turn to Jesus and place their faith in Him. And in chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, we are told that 5,000 men believe. If you're talking about Jesus, can I just encourage you at moments to allow the Spirit to lead you to those times when you invite people to faith in Jesus? To ask them if they place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? To invite them to turn to Him? Having made abundantly clear that Jesus is not the next supplement that they need to better their lives, Jesus comes to them as Savior to those who are absolutely lost. Invite them to place their faith in Him and turn to Him. Here's this amazing thing in this story. A lame man shows up at the temple unable to heal himself and begging just for enough money to make it another day. No expectation that anything more will happen than he'll get enough money for the next day. That would have satisfied him. But God had other plans. Jesus, through His apostles, restores this man beyond his wildest dreams. Coming to that same temple at that same hour are faithful Jews coming to another afternoon prayer time for another evening sacrifice. They're probably going to cry out to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to free them from the tyranny of Rome and to restore the glory days of Israel. But likely, they'll just be content to settle for another sacrifice for another day. But God had greater plans. Their Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, he had suffered, died, and was raised. David's son was already on his throne in heaven. And his plans were in full swing for his return and the fulfillment of all of his covenant promises. And in the meantime, a greater offer of freedom was available to them than they could possibly fathom. Something far greater than freedom from Rome. Freedom from the kingdom of sin and darkness. Freedom to be adopted in to the family of God as sons of God. Freedom to now 
begin experiencing the blessing of God promised to Abraham all those years ago. Brothers and sisters, this is what we go out from this place to proclaim. We go out, hopefully in spirit-produced compassion and humility. Because I'll tell you, you, we are not going to outshout the world. Our budget is far smaller than theirs. Our energy, not as great as theirs. More people screaming and shouting is just going to fade into the background. What will strike against those things are people who move out with compassion and humility and who constantly point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And who, as the Spirit leads, invite people to place their faith in Him. That's what we're called to do. And the great thing is, is that the the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom Peter had full confidence, was able to make a lame man's feet work, the muscles to function, so that he could leap and give praise to God, is the same Lord Jesus Christ who is in the business of calling forth those who are dead in their sins to see that He is the glorious, exalted servant of God, ruling and reigning and coming again, and to cause them to place their faith in Him that they might have their sins blotted out. They might experience times of refreshing and that they might be ready for Christ's return. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his completed work, perfect life lived, sacrificially dying, and victoriously rising again. We praise you that he right now is at your right hand, and he is absolutely limitless in his power and authority. We ask for a great work of your Spirit in us. That we would be people who move out from here with Spirit-produced compassion and humility. And to seize the opportunities that that passion and humility open up to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be led by your Spirit with full confidence in the saving power of Jesus Christ to invite people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask you, we plead with you, that today, this week, there would be some of us here who have opportunity to see some this week place their faith in Jesus Christ. We pray alongside many in this room who have family members, they have friends, they have co-workers. When we talk about the lost, They're not faceless people. Names come into our mind. People we love and care for. People we work next to. We we play sports with. People we work out with. People who, who we live next to. These are people we know, Lord. Their faces come to our mind. And the last thing we want to see is them to not be prepared when Christ returns. We plead for them, Lord. In the mighty name of Jesus, save them. Perhaps, Lord, there are some here even this morning who have not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Maybe they're not visitors. Maybe they're ones who've been a part of us for a long time. And although they're physically strong, they are spiritually broken and enslaved to sin and darkness. We pray, oh God, today would be the day that they place their faith in Christ. Not for our glory, so that we can pound our chest and point to the fact that we're getting it right, but so that we can point to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his mighty power to save. It's that that we turn to now and sing about. We might not be lame people whose feet have been made well, but those of us who are children of God this morning were in a much worse condition. And now, now we are able to call ourselves children of God, knowing that you have raised us to life and are continuing to raise us to life. And we sing to you, Lord Jesus, now. In Christ's name, amen.